This evening I'd like to talk about and explore uh, the spirit of metta. And a number of the challenges which arise in our metta practice. And then I'll try to point to how we can work with these challenges in a number of different ways. I'll bring out different aspects of metta practice, in part structured around how we respond to some of the uh, core challenges. I find it uh, pretty extraordinary that there is such a thing as metta practice, that there is uh, such a thing as our core practice of cultivating um, wisdom, kind heart. And I want to um, reflect on the uh, audacious nature of what we're doing. In one sense, it's simple, but in another sense, it's very uh, profound that we are intending to bring the kind heart to every moment of experience. And we're training here, but the horizon is that of bringing metta to whatever might come up in our lives. Um, Without exceptions. That's the horizon. I think this is... uh, an expression of the core of our practice, which I like to think about in in very ordinary English as becoming responsive rather than reactive. I think that's a very ordinary English way of talking about the Four Noble Truths. It means that we're able through our metta practice and our mindfulness, our wisdom practice, our embodied practice, to um, get to know over time uh, both our conditioning, our patterns of reactivity, and our um, capacities for awareness and for kindness, for seeing clearly. I find it amazing that such, a, uh, such an intention exists in the world. We have these lines from the uh, discourse on, on metta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And then it goes on to say, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Again, this is, uh, this is profound. And again, we're in this training and we're at different places in the training, but we are exploring that and seeing what that means and what, again, what stands in the way. You know, and that's been, that, uh, that intention has really been expressed in many traditions in different ways. And again, I'm 
appreciative of the fact that our retreat uh, virtually always uh, covers uh, Dr. King's birthday. And I wanted to just read a passage, uh, and I'll, I'll probably read a few passages from him during the evening. He says this call for a worldwide fellowship, and listen to the resonance with what I was just mentioning. It's really that intention in his language it would be to bring love to every situation. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. And so we're continually with our phrases over and over again inclining in that direction. You know, our phrases really um, convey that intention. And it's important to, to emphasize, I think no matter how many times, that our metta practice is really about inclination and intention. In that sense, it comes out of wisdom. We, through our phrases, we incline towards kindness. They carry, the phrases carry kindness. And we, in a sense, let whatever happens after we say each phrase occur. It may lead to a sense of the open heart. It may lead to nothing. It may lead to thinking about lunch. It may lead to um, being irritated with our benefactor or, or dear friend, and so forth. So very important that the, the uh, I like to say that uh, metta practice is an intention practice, not a production practice. We're not sitting here saying, I will now produce metta. We're inclining, really crucial point. It means that we do our best. For as the, the poet T.S. Eliot once said, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. And so we try to bring this quality of metta out first in the training and then gradually in, our, in all the parts of our lives. This is from the Mahayana tradition, Shanti Deva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Bodhisattva is the being who's dedicated to uh, awakening and helping others, especially to awaken. Whenever catching sight of others, look upon them with an open, loving heart. It's from the 8th century. And this is from the uh, Tibetan teacher named Patro Rinpoche from the uh, 19th century. Everything you say with your mouth or do with your hands, instead of being harmful to others, should be straightforward and kind. So we, 
we train here with the phrases and then we find ways and it's a whole, we could completely have a second part of the retreat, you know. After we've sat here, meditated, then we could say, okay, okay, well, good. Well, how do we make this real in daily life? In our speech, in our relationships, in our work, in our social engagement and so forth. We'll point in different ways to some of our responses over, over these nights to, to those uh, questions of application. The finding is that the reason that uh, metta works is that at our depths, we are, we are of the nature of metta and wisdom. In other words, that uh, that which covers metta or that which gets in the way, even though it can be deeply habitual and be there and uh, in a very strong way and have and may have been there over generations and even millennia in some form, some of forms of our conditioning. Still, it's more superficial than our depths. That's the finding. And I thought I'd, let's see, it's expressed in different ways. There's, this is a poem by the uh, Persian poet uh, Hafiz. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely burst you open, wide open into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. <laughs> oh, look again within yourself, for I know that you, once, you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. Can, we, can, we can recite that every morning, right? <laughs> like that. In the Buddhist tradition, really the same sentiment that uh, there are lines which are sometimes translated as the mind and heart are brightly shining. They're luminous. They're said to be a luminosity about us. And in the uh, old text, that's particularly connected with metta. It's particularly connected with the quality of metta. And every being has that. Every sentient being has that even those who have done very unskillful actions. That's really the basis, ultimately, for uh, metta not being selective. It comes when we touch that, that depth. That's when we, as it were, um, realize the, that uh, nature of ourselves. So you might have read something like what I just said in the promotional literature for this retreat. 
you know, kindness, develop kindness, warmth, and so forth. And then we actually come here and sit and repeat phrases much or all of the day. And it's not easy, right? Especially the first, first few days. I want to let you know that having been with meta retreats for almost, uh, probably almost 15 years, it's really nice to be at these retreats towards the end of the retreat. <laughs> so there are challenges to there are challenges to meta practice, and I want to sort of structure my reflections around uh, how we address these challenges in our practice. And there's the challenge of distraction. You know, the mind going to the past and future, going all sorts of other places than to the metaphrases or to, or to that sense of the, the kind heart, going in all, all different directions. And there are some of the challenges that uh, Heather mentioned yesterday. Do you remember Heather's morning instructions? They were, um, um, we, we think they were yesterday, but it feels, does that feel like five days ago that she gave those instructions? And she identified the challenges, you know, of sleepiness and wanting and restlessness and sometimes sometimes we can have a lot of doubt you know what about this meta practice you know maybe it's not for me or maybe i'm the exception to the finding of the sages about the the depths of the heart i came off the assembly line with a defect i should be sent back to the factory. <laughs> you know, and there are, other, there are other challenges as well. There's the challenge that sometimes we um, have trouble accessing the kind heart you know, for different reasons. Sometimes we find reactivity. Sometimes we find, as we sit, uh, materials uh, from our being, or, or we, I might say emotions, or states of mind, or um, difficult, difficult states which come up, some of them seemingly from beneath the surface of our, of our being, and we have to work with those as well. And there can particularly be a challenge in accessing metta for self. That's a, well, that's a beginning list, right? That's a beginning list of these challenges. So I want to, I want to really uh, look into how we address these challenges. And I didn't mention again just the challenges of making this real in daily life. In situations in which we're actually talking with people, it's hard enough when we're not talking, right? <laughs> Imagine. I remember I went to a retreat once with Jack Cornfield. At the end of the retreat, he looked over and you, you look so peaceful. He said, of course, you haven't opened your mouth yet. <laughs> and so what, what happens when we open our mouths, we actually engage with others, things are moving more quickly, and so forth. So 
that's a whole other set of challenges. So let me talk about a, um, a kind of group together a few of these challenges uh, and really continue what uh, uh, Sylvia was talking about partly last night, partly this morning. And that is the, uh, the way that in metta practice, we do learn to steady the mind. We develop in samadhi or usually translated as, as con concentration. Um, not the best translation. A lot of us don't like that uh, term because it seems to imply like this strenuous, willful, straining effort. And so um, some of us prefer just to use the word samadhi, which actually in its etymology is more like gathering or unification or placing together. That's the actual etymology uh, when you look at the, the roots has to do with placing together. And I'll, I'll talk in a moment about some skillful ways of working with that steadiness, but it's that, it's that steadiness that can help address a lot of these challenges, particularly distraction and the, the sleepiness, some extent the, the restlessness as well. And I was, I was reflecting that uh, um, we live in a society which is, um, has a high level of distraction. You know, when I was uh, doing a little bit of exploration related to developing this talk, I, I think I, uh, I Googled distraction, <laughs> which is interesting, interesting experience in itself. Uh, and uh, I, I came up, one of the things I came up with was a um, advertisement for the Microsoft uh, window phone number seven. <laughs> and uh, there's an ad, which some of you might have seen. I, I don't really watch that much TV, so I haven't seen it, but it was pretty interesting to watch like on the internet, it, it was an ad about how distracted people are. And it showed people using cell phones and you know, running into trees, running into each other, doing all sorts of things. Anyone seen that? No. I thought it was pretty clever. And um, the theme of the ad was, we have the cell phone that can save you from your cell phone. <laughs> and in many ways we are you know, we are all being experimented with. And it's pretty clear that we are more distracted. There have been quite a number of studies that show that, you know, with the increasing use of electronic media, the level of distraction is higher. People find it harder to concentrate. There are lower levels of creativity, lower levels of efficiency. People are going one way and the other. And probably for me, most uh, troubling is that there's actually, in many ways, a deterioration in um, relationships. And they've done studies that show that, the, uh, particularly with teenagers, the more, one, the more teenagers use electronic media, the lower their levels of empathy are. You know, the lower, the less the capacity is to 
with, with a basic kindness, take the perspective of another and tune in to the emotions and perspectives and experiences of another person. And so, you know, we, we, have, we have some conditioning we have to work with in terms of distraction. And so the uh, practice of metta can be classified as a, as a samadhi practice. And one can actually reach quite high levels of uh, samadhi doing this practice with the phrases. At a certain point, the phrases drop away and one's more with the feeling, with, the, with the, uh, the, what we sometimes call the metta sense or the metta feeling. And, but there's something that's uh, quite powerful. And I, I know uh, this was mentioned in, in one of the groups today. There's something that's uh, quite a relief in just doing one thing. You know, there is not a lot of complicated decision-making about what to do here. Right? It's just, you know, metta all day. There, I like the, uh, there's something beautiful about it. I, I like, there's a, a line that I like very much from the uh, philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. And there's something that can be quite beautiful about staying with this, you know, this noble intention to incline our being towards the kind heart, moment by moment, even if it's not going so well at a certain, at a certain moment. So some suggestions for having a, a, a balanced way of continually focusing on one thing, because it can very much uh, lead to a sense of straining or striving or expectations or trying too hard. How many can relate to that? Yeah. yeah. And so just a few suggestions on that. Um, somehow we have to develop what could be called a kind of relaxed persistence. And it can be helpful sometimes to give oneself that intention as one begins the session. And for some of us, we need to emphasize more the relaxation aspect of that if we're striving too hard. And we can sometimes know this by uh, feeling pressure in the head or feeling the body a little bit tense. And some of us may need to really emphasize that relaxed quality. But there's also, we have to also emphasize the, the dimension of persistence. And sometimes even a quality of discipline. You know, if we have a persistent thought about maybe some part of our lives that's coming up over and over again, and we don't, and our sense is it's, uh, you know, it's, maybe it's just repeating something, and something is repeating over and over again. Or maybe it's something in the future that we're anticipating. And we, you know, our uh, wisdom says really to just stay with the practice. And we might, when we have that thought come up, like a firm trainer of a puppy, say, not now. <laughs> we can just say that to ourselves. You know? And so there are some ways of, uh, that would be more on the persistent side. 
So we want, to, we want to keep coming back. We want to have this balance of, we might, another way to talk about that balance that I expressed through relaxed persistence, we could say it's a balance of doing and being. Not that there's a certain amount of doing with the metta we're repeating, but can we also relax into what's there in the heart? You know, and sometimes it helps to use what Heather was calling the echo or the pause after each phrase just to let there be some, some silence and keep coming back. There can be a very mysterious quality to the deepening steadiness. It's not linear. We can be in a haze, stay with it, and five minutes later it's crystal clear. And there's a connection with the heart. So it's a reason to keep going. It's not linear and it's mysterious. And sometimes the heart can feel dry and five minutes later something happens, you know. On my first time doing uh, metta, it was uh, over 25 years ago, and I actually did metta for a week without instructions, which wasn't great, but there weren't that many instructions around at the time. And, but I thought I wanted to try metta, and it was, you know, partly because of the lack of instructions, it wasn't going that well. And, but I was keeping on repeating the phrases. And I thought, oh, that's kind of, kind of dry. And then um, one morning, just over breakfast, I found myself saying to myself, I love you. <laughs> I, said, I said, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, and so be, uh, be open to the mystery of the practice. And if you find yourself a little bit tight, you can sometimes say at the beginning, of the session, let me be with the mystery of this. Let me be with the mystery of how this unfolds. And so over time that coming back to the phrases to the metta practice, over time that helps with the steadiness. It helps with the distraction, it helps with the sleepiness. Of course, there are other ways that we can work with the sleepiness. Uh, I think that we've mentioned just to, at times, stand up, perfectly fine in the hall to stand up, sit down, stand up, multiple times in a sitting. You know, or open your eyes and so forth. You know, probably in the groups and um, at different times in the hall, we've mentioned some of these. Uh, sometimes there can be uh, imbalances between concentration and energy. And uh, when the uh, concentration is higher and the energy is lower, we can be in a little bit of a dreamlike state where we're not really focused. We call this sinking mind. And there can be a, a very pleasant dreamlike state that we may think, I've arrived. <laughs> but it actually is a fairly vague dreamlike state. And so um, in that sort of situation, what we need is more energy so we can open the eyes, take a vigorous walk, and so forth. And the other side of that uh, imbalance can be when there's more, sometimes there's more energy in the system and less concentration. And, and we can feel that sometimes, sometimes manifest as restlessness or as just a lot of energy, kind of buzzing and so forth. 
And then we want to try, you know, over time, if we stay with it, the deepened concentration tends to stabilize that energy. It tends to get integrated in our system and we don't experience it increasingly as um, restlessness. So in that case, we could do things which help with the steadiness aspect. Another challenge that I mentioned is that of having difficulty accessing the heart. And this is there for some of us. It's there for some of us at times, for some of us in some aspects of the meta practice, as I mentioned, uh, and as Heather mentioned, you know, in, in introducing the practice, um, for many of us, metta towards self can be challenging. You know, that there can be uh, self-judgment. And in our culture, I think you know, many of us know that this is rather pervasive. Some of you may know the, the, or have heard of the first time the Dalai Lama really encountered West, Western self-judgment or self-hatred. And I was actually there. I was at uh, Insight Meditation Society a long time ago. It was, I think, the Dalai Lama's first trip to the U.S., and he was taking Q&A. And his English pretty good, but this uh, question, I think the question was it, was, it was on pieces of paper. And uh, someone had written, uh, I don't think I deserve love. Please comment. <laughs> and he was confused. And he went back and forth with the translator in Tibetan, for probably three or four minutes and didn't quite get it. And then finally, he blurted out in what I would call very un-Dalai Lama-like manner. He blurted out, you do deserve love. <laughs> was kind of, that was his response. You're wrong. <laughs> and and later he said that he uh, was unprepared for that experience. And he said he, it took him the better part of several years talking with Western psychologists and really you know, talking with a number of people about these tendencies towards self-judgment. They have plenty of issues in Tibetan mind, Tibetan culture, but this isn't so much one of them. Right? And so it's there for a lot of us. And it's something we can notice and work with. And I like to think of the training in metta as a training in learning to lead with the heart and access the heart. And you know, the, the lack of access to the heart can be there for different reasons. We may have self-judgment because in some ways that was passed on to us when we were young. You know, we were, something was passed on, you know, for some of us, it may be quite intergenerational over many generations. Something was passed on that led to a devaluing of ourselves or a questioning or a questioning of some aspect of ourselves. And that can be, that can surface during meta practice. And we can work with it. And metta is part of the long-term way to work with that. You know, I um, have taught on this uh, subject uh, 
for about 15 years, uh, coming out of my own practice, which uh, work that uh, I now call transforming the judgmental mind. And Heather and I have taught retreats for a number of years on, on the subject. And um, just for full disclosure, my interest in the subject was not accidental. <laughs> and even with working with it, I can still feel residues. Where you know, or you know, like most of things we've worked with, you know, under stress we regress. Do you know that one? And so, it's a big one. And when when uh, we work with people in retreats or in other in other manners. The heart practices, not just metta, but the other ones uh, we're exploring, compassion, joy, equanimity, practices of forgiveness, uh, are very instrumental. So the heart practice is really to, in part, access this quality of kindness and know that in an increasingly uh, clear ways. It's a deep healing because as we do that, we come to know whatever else there is, I know myself as kindness. And it really, in a way, um, goes against the conditioning. And some of us have challenges in accessing the kind heart because of our uh, conditioning in other ways. You know, I know that for myself, uh, as a man, even though I knew that I had a kind of a warm, tender heart, you know, by my responses to driver ed movies as a teenager <laughs> and you know, rock and roll songs and so forth. I, I, knew, I knew that there was there, but it was uh, certainly not socially supported, right? And, uh, and so there, there was a way in which my own conditioning was to be uh, very good at thinking, you know, like many of us across, across genders. And so uh, to kind of access the heart um, goes against some of that conditioning. It can take time, you know. And I don't know, it's mysterious to me, uh, given that conditioning. And, uh, but we, this retreat's a little bit different. We have a higher percentage of men on this retreat. We have about 25% men. That's higher. <laughs> than usual. Usually it's more like uh, 15 to 20%, right? And it's mysterious, but there's something about accessing the heart and the interest in it and the challenges to it, which is connected with gender in many ways, connected with many things, but that's, that's, that's one. And so it is a training. It's a training, you know, one way we can look at our meta practice, it's, it's learning to ask, where is my heart now? moment to moment. And so that, that, that could be said what we do. We ask, where is my heart this moment? Through the phrases. And we can, in a way, see that as a training to have us, again, incline towards increasingly touch the kind heart moment to moment. Some of the challenges, some of the further challenges 
are similar to that with what we encounter when we find self-judgment or judgment of others. That we, we open in that and we find, you know, I find, I think we find generally that in metta, uh, metta retreats can be sometimes more volatile than strict mindfulness retreats. And has anyone been having vivid dreams? Yeah, that's normal. Okay. I, I know, I'm sure my colleagues have had the experience too, but I've had the experience of people come in, you know, in the morning and say, hey, in my dream last night, I was an ax murderer. Is this my true nature? I was like, no, it's, it's normal. <laughs> you know, we're all axe murderers, <laughs> so to speak. But it's, um, thing, things come up, right? Things come up in the dream, in the dream life. They come up in the practice. And that, that's, that's normal. That thing, we can sometimes notice things which uh, stand in the way of the heart. Sometimes in the practice, we, we notice whether there's fear and anxiety and so forth. And we, sometimes these, these appear, we're doing metta and we're doing metta maybe towards, again, maybe the benefactor in relation to the benefactor and some kind of jealousy comes up or some sense of um, what about me? And some, and it can lead to even, can open up to grief or to um, other quite strong emotions. That, that's, that's normal. And I want to give a guideline. Uh, I don't know if this has been given, but um, the guideline for working with what comes up in terms of meta practice is when things are kind of moderate level or less strength, we let them be part of the background. So that's different from the technique of mindfulness. We, mindfulness we might track, oh, there's thinking, oh, there's planning, oh, there's sadness. Here, the general guideline is we stay with the metta phrases and let everything that comes up and takes our attention away be part of the background. When something is strong and has duration, maybe something like that sadness or grief comes up and and lasts for a while, we can let that be our focus and we would work with kind of a um, meta-flavored Mindfulness, we can feel what it's like in the body and so forth and just be with, with what's coming up. When it's no longer predominant, we can go back to the phrases. So that's part of the process. And uh, it can be a challenge to work, with, to work with what comes up at times. That's part of the territory. One of the uh, developments in metta practice that we've been emphasizing uh, a lot is the way that uh, there, we've talked about it in terms of the connection of mindfulness and metta and wisdom and the, sort of the integration of those. And I think there's something that occurs in our metta practice over time that is quite profound and I think uh, culturally very significant which is that we increasingly integrate the, we might say, the mind, the heart, and the body. Mm -hmm. 
And we emphasize that through the way that the, the yoga brings in the metta, the way that we see how as metta becomes increasingly mature, it has wisdom and mindfulness. We might talk about the wise heart. I like to talk about the wise embodied heart as the direction of our practice. And I think it's not hard to see how the split of mind and heart and body is a profound cultural issue. You know, how there can be thinking and planning without the kind heart in our culture. Or just think of what was the model of education that most of us had, or many of us had. You know, for me certainly it was, uh, it was primarily the mind, right? Primarily mental. What would it be like to have an education that, in which we edu- educated all the parts of ourselves and saw their interconnection? So I actually think when we bring about this integration, I have to be careful the way I say that, when we bring about disintegration, you get that slip. <laughs> when we bring about this integration, uh, I think we're, we're actually uh, doing something very significant in our world. When we bring back in our own lives the integration of mind and heart and body and bring that into the different parts of our lives, I think it's a very powerful response and it will lead to further responses to um, um, the needs of our world. One of, the ways that the, the, one of the ways that this integration occurs um, is through what we'll be starting tomorrow, uh, I guess starting, yeah, tomorrow, which is the practice of the other three of the Brahma Vihara. The uh, practice of the, what we sometimes call the stations of the heart. The usual translation would be the divine abodes. Uh, These are the uh, different flavors of the wise, kind heart. So we have loving kindness or metta, uh, compassion or karuna, what's usually translated as sympathetic joy or sometimes just joy or mudita, and equanimity or upeka. And... As I mentioned, I like to think that there's actually an extended family that includes forgiveness and gratitude and empathy and so forth. Um, But we'll be starting with these practices and I won't go into very much uh, depth on this, but just to say that uh, I, I like to interpret the way that these come together as bringing together the mind, the mind and the heart particularly. And I think we have to continually bring in the body particularly particularly as uh, Westerners. And so we have the, uh, the way that uh, loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity relate to each other is that actually we have to have all four to have the mature heart, to have the mature and wise heart. And that without the other three, each of them is subject to distortions. Some of you know these as 
the so-called near enemies. Larry likes to use the language, the near opposites. Heather has a nice phrase, the near misses. These are distortions in the nature of the wise heart. Also a challenge that we'll find. We'll find there's sometimes distortion. And we, uh, when we bring in these other three, we balance things out. So the typical distortion of loving kindness will be some kind of attachment. Some kind of, could be possessiveness. Love, you know, it would be the typical distortion of love. The distortion, the typical distortion of compassion would be some kind of pity. It looks like compassion, but it's distorted in some way. In, actual, in actuality, traditionally, there's one name for each of them. We probably could name five or ten for each of them. For, uh, for sympathetic joy, there's some kind of uh, overly attached overly attached way that we, that we connect with joy. You know, maybe possessive, it's mine, I, it's, you know, in some way. And then with equanimity, which brings in the wisdom dimension, the, the basic distortion is lack of heart. Right. Traditionally said to be indifference. And what's really interesting and subtle about this teaching is both that there are distorted versions of the kind heart. Again, distorted doesn't mean totally off. There can be some qualities that are quite genuine, but there's, some, <clears throat> there's something missing, something distorted. And so we'll be exploring in these uh, next days how the metta can be <clears throat> complemented, how the metta practice can be complemented by developing these other qualities. And in particular, uh, as I said, I I love the subtlety of two ways, pointing out the distortions and pointing out that in their mature form, each of them has all of the aspects. And so metta, through equanimity particularly, has the wisdom, has the perspective. And so again, I, I interpret this as the coming together of the wisdom and the kind heart. And again, I think maybe they were more, I think uh, many cultures have been more embodied than us. And so I, we have to, I have to continually bring in that dimension of embodiment. Yeah. And so finally, we bring out the practice into the world. We bring this into, into daily life. We find ways to uh, develop the quality of metta in our being with things moving more quickly, with our speech, with our relationships, with our, with our engagement in the world. And we, we find ways to have that, have that sense of um, growth, really, from exploring how to do that. And there's, there's, a very, there's a very important way that we can understand that we're in a training. And there's, there's a way that the, the training has these different stages that we first really, often in protected environments, we access the kind heart and we cultivate it. And this, again, we can think of our retreats, it's, it's a training. We're doing something that requires the level of simplicity and focus and support. It'd be hard to do this in daily life, especially 
if we had a lot of the challenges I mentioned operative. And so we engage in this training in a protected environment. We go through some of the challenges. We learn to stabilize more and more with the metta. And then, you know, as we, as we each will do to some extent by the end of the retreat, and then we start bringing it out into our lives. We might be selective. Maybe I want to bring this out into uh, my speech, into my communication as best I can or I want to particularly focus on my family life, or I want to um, do metta for, I was going to say for political figures, but that's, that's advanced practice, sorry. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, there's a trajectory. <laughs> there's a trajectory. We, we don't get to the difficult person in this retreat till five days into the retreat, and that's the moderately difficult person. So. We, um, so we find, we find these ways to bring the practice into our, our, our activities, into our doing, into, into more complex occurrences. We work with the, um, especially with the link between the uh, practice of metta and the ethical precepts. You know, I interpreted uh, uh, the first night the ethical precepts as really an expression of metta in many ways. The expression of, again, stated more negatively of non-harming, but that's always, the flip side is always uh, that there's care. And so the ethical precepts are really, really crucial. You know, I think it's like, um, like I think Heather, Heather mentioned that uh, there's a sense in which when there's metta for self-developed, which, which for some of us can be advanced, that uh, there's that quotation that one cannot hurt another when one truly loves oneself. That's a very powerful teaching. I think you know, it has all sorts of profound implications for ourselves, for why people do hurt each other and so forth. So we bring this out into, bring this out into the world in different ways. And finally, we bring this out into the public world. Very challenging, you know. Someone like Dr. King did that. He continually said that what I'm doing is I'm bringing the love ethic into the world. And he said once that prior to reading Gandhi, he thought that the love ethic was only about face-to-face -face relationships and not about the wider social world. And he said that after really studying Gandhi at some length, he said that he realized that this quality of love in his tradition, or we could say metta, can be brought out into the world. It can be there uh, as a core inner practice that balances one, one's activities. I like very much the <clears throat> statement of Cornell West, who said that the uh, public face of love is justice. The public face of love is justice. So there's a lot more I could say about that, about bringing it out further into the world. And it's, um, I think it flows from each of our practice of metta as it develops. We want to have the metta be there increasingly in all the parts of our lives. And we want to bring it to the world. Again, 
I've tried to suggest in quite a number of ways when we practice metta and we bring it into our lives and into the world, it's far more than a private practice. You know, especially when we're conscious of that and we can, we can move in that way. <clears throat> I think I want to finish with uh, really just, uh, I'll finish with three readings, three short readings. The first is by the, the writer Eudora Welty. She says, my continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's plight. To part that a curtain, invisible veil of indifference. And we're doing that with our meta practice. And then from the Metasuda itself, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. And then lastly, Let's see this is. This is in relation to bringing it out into the world. This is uh, from Dina Metzger. It's, it's called Song. It's quite short. It's a poem. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. I'll read that one more time just to finish. Song, uh, Dina Metzger. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. So thank you for your very uh, kind attention and thank you for your practice. And we'll have, uh, I think, uh, our usual schedule now, half hour walking, and then we'll come back and will we, should we have a shorter version than usual for the sitting and chanting? Yeah, so we're, this is our Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.